the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And this weekend, my son. Hello, everyone. This show is usually in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, and nostalgia. You know, they're not equal parts of the show, but the first part, let's concentrate on estate planning. We get email questions. Beth, what's our first question for the evening? This is from Deborah. Mr. Connors, my daughter recently remarried and her husband is very manipulative and a big spender. How do I stop my daughter from using a power of attorney I already gave her? Uh, It's from Deborah. It's a difficult question. I mean, one thing, legally, it's not a difficult question. You can you can revoke the power of attorney. You know, notarized document, you can say the power of attorney cannot be used anymore. Politically, though, I think that might be very difficult. So it's more of a personal question how you're going to handle it. You may want to speak to your daughter and say that you don't want the power of attorney used except for your benefit. If you have any doubt that your daughter's going to do the right thing, we can do a revocation of a power of attorney. Maybe you want to appoint somebody else. I don't know your family dynamics, who else is out there. But you certainly can revoke the power of attorney. And one, I might talk to your daughter first and and see how you can work it out. Because, again, you don't want to hurt your daughter's feelings just because you don't like her husband. You should have a conversation. And if if it doesn't work out, we can revoke the power of attorney. Possibly there's somebody else in the family we can use as a power of attorney. But remember, if you do a power of attorney, it's never irrevocable. You can always change a power of attorney. You can always fire a person who's your power of attorney. They work for you. You're the boss. You can still fire them. You know, some people have the misconception. I give a power of attorney to my son or daughter. That means you're turning everything over to your son or daughter. That's not necessarily true. They're your agent. You know, now if you go to court and there's a guardian appointed and the court appoints somebody as your guardian, for the most part, that is irrevocable. It's almost impossible to get a guardian discharged if a guardian is appointed. And that's one of the reasons we like doing powers of attorney, because in a lot of cases, if we do a power of attorney, you choose the person to be in, in charge of your assets. God forbid you have a stroke or another disabling illness, and you can fire a power of attorney. If the court appoints somebody, then you got to go back to court to fire them. And a lot of times, it's just a no-win situation. 
you know, guardianship in court. You know, you don't have access to your money. You can't fire somebody because you don't have money to fire them. You don't have money, you know, you don't have money to pay for lawyers. So plan in advance. Do a PAV attorney if there is somebody you can trust. If you don't trust somebody, that's an issue that, you know, maybe we need to speak about. Now, each week, Monday through Friday, Kevin McCullough's got a show here on 970 The Answer and 570 The Mission, 3 o'clock. But each Thursday afternoon on his 970 The Answer show, he picks a question from our emails and he asks it on the air and we answer the question for Kevin's listeners. So, Kevin, take it away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that you'll get one of your legal questions answered by none other than Mr. Mike Connors. No, not the guy from Hawaii Five O, but the guy that is the boss when it comes to uh, insurance, uh, I'm sorry, estate care, elder law in the New York uh, uh, area, tri-state area with offices in the five boroughs. And, uh, Mike, this week's question comes from Margot. She says, I want to leave my house to my church, but I don't know how to best accomplish this. Mike Connors, how does she do it? Well, you know, a lot depends on where, when she wants to leave it, but I assume she wants to leave it after she's gone. The the way I would ordinarily do it, we would do a will leaving the house to the church, assuming that's what she wants. Then I would do a revocable trust, and in the trust I would say I leave the house, you know, to my church or whatever. And then we need an executor who's going to carry out the terms of the will and a trustee who will carry out the terms of the trust, which is going to be the same person. Now, why is it important that she do both? Well, I assume she's not going to, she may have relatives who may not consent to her will, and we don't want to go through probate. So in that case, we'd rather have the house go in the trust to to the church. Now, I mean, if her, maybe her, she's got a brother or sister who's a member of the church, and they're going to have no problems with it, and that's a discussion to be had. But if one of her relatives doesn't consent to the will, the the, the will be tied up in court for years. Right. So this is the best way to make that ironclad. Right. It's belt and suspenders to make sure it gets through there. (laughs) I love the analogy. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right, Mike Connors, if you've got a question for him, uh, you should send him to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. We'll answer one every uh, Thursday here on Kevin McCullough Radio. But he'll also answer them on his uh, Saturday and Sunday morning broadcasts on 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock at AM 570 and 102.3 FM, The Mission, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. You can also call the office and get your questions answered there, 718 Maybe you don't know how to set up your will or do a a revocable trust. That's what they specialize in. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough. Again, you can listen to Kevin each Monday through Friday on 970 The Answer at 5 o'clock, each Monday through Friday at 570 The Mission at 3 o'clock. And thanks again to Kevin for giving us that little bit of extra exposure. Michael, you have a questionnaire. Can you read your question? Yeah, this question is from Anthony. As a New York City renter, I have no quote-unquote real property. Will a trust work for me? Well, yes, it could work for you, but there there are different reasons. Ordinarily, uh, we want to trust if you own real estate because the best way to avoid probate on real estate is with a trust agreement because, you know, if you have a bank account, you can have a bank account and trust for or joint. If you have a brokerage account, it can be transfer on death. If you have U.S. savings bonds, treasury bills, you can make them payable on death. If you have an IRA, a 401k, you can name beneficiaries. And those designations will avoid probate. What those designations do not do is protect those assets from nursing home bills. So Anthony, if your goal is to protect those assets from nursing home bills, then we may want to do what we call an irrevocable trust. What that means, you're kind of like in partnership with your children. Your children manage the assets for you. You can change the the manager, the trustees, if you want. 
but you don't have full and absolute control of the assets. Those assets will avoid probate. Those assets will reasonably go out tax-free. By say reasonably, if the assets are less than $5,740,000, they will go out tax-free. The question is, if you have, if you want to protect your assets from nursing home bills, we may do an irrevocable trust. A revocable trust does virtually no nothing for you if you have liquid assets because you can have the bank accounts and trust for a joint. Now, here's some examples where you still may want to do a trust even if you have only liquid assets. Let's say you have 10 nephews and nieces. It's almost impossible to keep all your bank accounts and all your assets equal among 10 nephews and nieces. So you could do a trust. You appoint one of your nephews and nieces as a trustee. They sign an agreement that after you're gone, all the assets will be divided, let's say, in 10 equal shares if that's what you want. That's another reason to do the trust, to avoid confusion, because, you know, sometimes people think, well, I have a bank account and I have the bank account and trust for my daughter and I have a will and my will says everything I own is going to be divided in three equal shares. Legally, if the daughter collects that bank account, she does not have to divide it in three equal shares among the three children. It's her asset. And sometimes people are confused about that and that causes problems. But you don't need a trust to avoid probate if you have only liquid bank accounts. We need a trust to avoid probate if you own real estate. But we still may want to use a trust for other reasons to protect it from medical bills, make sure there's a clean and even division that your wishes are completely known. Those are the different reasons why we may need a trust. And if you want to talk those over, you can come in, talk it over with us at Connors and Sullivan. You can always call for a consultation. You know, the phone number is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island. I think we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here. And my son, Michael. Good evening, everyone. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn, New York at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then on Thursday, December 5th at The Adria, 2 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718 718- 1-8-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com That's connorsandsullivan.com Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. 
You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Now, as most of you know, again, our show is divided in different parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part, we talk about history, politics, religion. Today, we're going to focus on history. There's no meeting of the Civil War Roundtable in December, but needless to say, we have to get a civil war historian on the show. So we've got Thomas Ryan. Lee is trapped and must be taken. 11 faithful days after Gettysburg. And then after that, I'm very proud that we have the Polish Consulate General of New York, Maciej Gobieski, and we also have Eva from our office here. You want to say hello? Yes, dzień dobry. Chciałam bardzo serdecznie powitać naszych polskich słuchaczy w imieniu naszej firmy Connors and Sullivan. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's Polish. We're going to be talking about a documentary on Netflix, uh, The Devil Within. And the, the Polish the Polish nation has some problems with some of the maps and, and whatever. But we're also going to be talking about Polish history, which I think doesn't get enough attention either on our, you know, I never learned very much at all about Poland in our history books. And I'm sure today people are not learning about Poland in, in our history books and its contributions to, to Western civilization. So we're going to be talking, and, and we're also going to be talking about the Holocaust. And there were some things I didn't know from the interview. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. First, we got Thomas Ryan. Lee is trapped and must be taken. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. When a desperate parent calls YCS seeking help for their child with special needs, we are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A few years back, in fact, I think it was the first guest we ever had on this show, we had Edwin C. Bars talk about the Gatlin. 
Battle of Gettysburg because our first show was on July 3rd. And it was it was about 150 years to the day at the conclusion of the battle. And right now we have somebody who is the winner of the Edwin C. Barr Scholarly, Scholarly Research Award. Thomas Ryan. Welcome to Connor's Corner, Thomas. Thank you very much, Mike. Very happy to be here. Okay, so your book is about the days after, not about the Battle of Gettysburg, but the days after Gettysburg. So that's correct. Set the scene that's for right. the for the audience. Yeah, it, well, it's it, there's it. It talks about the the really eleven days after the Battle of Gettysburg. Of course, the Battle of Gettysburg was was devastating to both armies. There was a lost uh, roughly fifty thousand casualties, killed, wounded and uh, missing or captured, uh, equally divided between the two armies. So they were not in the best of, of physical condition after the battle, but still uh, the Confederates had about 40,000 troops and the Union had about 70,000. So there, there was still uh, an opportunity for General George G. Meade, who was the commander of the Army of the Potomac, of the Northern Army, to engage General Lee's Army of Northern Virginia once again, and as President Lincoln hoped to see happen, that if there was an opportunity to defeat and to crush Lee's army before it escaped across the Potomac River, the war would be ended. So that was what was at stake during these 11 days after the Battle of Gettysburg, as as Lee retreated and Meade very slowly uh, finally got underway after a few days to pursue, or at least to follow, uh, Lee's army. So that sets the stage as to what the book is all about. July 4th, 1863, what happens? Well, July 4th, 1863, two very important things happened. First of all, Lee began the retreat from the Battle of Gettysburg. He decided that he no longer had enough strength. And in addition, he was running out of ammunition. He had been fighting for three, three full days. And of course he was, he was 150 miles away from his home base. He didn't have, uh, excellent, uh, uh, logistics support up there in Pennsylvania. So he decided he knew he had to retreat. The other thing that happened was that out on the Mississippi River at, at the city of Vicksburg, General Ulysses S. Grant brought about the surrender of the Confederate Army at Vicksburg. This was, following the victory at Gettysburg, Lincoln knew at that point that the war would soon be over if General Lee's army was attacked and defeated. So that, you know, that was, those were the two things that happened on uh, on July the 4th that were were noteworthy. Okay, so Lee starts his retreat. What does Meade know and what does he do? Well, Meade knows that, that Lee is going to retrace the steps that he followed when he, when he came across the Potomac River uh, at, um, at Williamsport, Maryland, which was about 50 miles away from Gettysburg. So he and that there was a bridge uh, in that vicinity, a place called Falling Waters, just just south of a couple miles south of Williamsport. But in, interestingly enough, the there was a contingent of Union troops that were based in Frederick, Maryland, that went out 
on the 3rd of July and destroyed that bridge. They sent cavalry cavalry down to the Potomac River and destroyed that bridge. So Lee, unbeknownst to Lee, uh, he didn't have a a bridge to cross when he finally arrived at, at the Potomac River. The other thing was that on the 4th of July, it began raining heavily and continued for several days. So the Potomac River rose about eight or nine feet. So there was no hope for Lee's army to be able to cross the river without a bridge, in other words. So they were trapped, basically, uh, when um, <clears throat> when they finally reached that vicinity after marching uh, the better part of 50 miles after, after the Battle of Gettysburg. It took them about three days to reach Hagerstown, Maryland, is where they um, they they grouped at that location and then began to entrench a position, knowing full well that they would be attacked eventually once Meade and, the, and his army, the, the Unit Army, caught up with uh, with Lee's troops at that point. So they they were prepared. That is, Lee and his army had sufficient time because Meade was slow in moving away from Gettysburg and and gave them Lee enough time to um, uh, dig the entrenchments and prepare a defensive position there in front, just in front of the town of Williamsport. So what happens? Well, what happened was that eventually uh, Meade's army arrived and they decided to entrench themselves, would you believe? They they took a defensive position rather than to go on, on the offensive. And at the same time, now the Union Army had an excellent in, intelligence organization called the Bureau of Military Information, or BMI for short, who was gathering information about the um, vulnerability of Lee's army. And the opportunity existed for General Meade to send troops across the river because he brought up two pontoon bridges uh, from Washington, D.C. They were shipped up in time for him to be able to use those to cross troops to the south side of the river, which could, in effect, have blocked Lee's retreat. But he decided to delay that for whatever reason. Meade, actually, it was interesting that Meade was a Democrat, as a, and President Lincoln was a Republican. They had two completely different perspectives about the war itself. One, on the one hand, the Republican president wanted the war to end right there and, and, and then at that, by having his army attack Lee's position. Meade, on the other hand, thought it was best to drive the Confederate army from our soil, is the way he phrased it. He wrote a message to his troops, a congratulatory message after the Battle of Gettysburg, saying that our next job was to drive these men from our soil. And Lincoln, when he heard that that Meade had sent that message, his hands dropped to his knees and he said, drive them from our soil. That's not what we want done. We want to destroy Lee's army and then the war would be over. Now, I think you brought up a point that a lot of people probably don't realize in today's world. Civil War generals were very political compared to today. Absolutely. 
Hey, certainly, certainly well. As a matter of fact, the one of the generals that preceded me was General McClellan, also a Democrat, and he and Lincoln never saw eye to eye at all. They were they were at loggerheads the almost the entire time that McClellan was the commander. Of course, Lincoln eventually fired McClellan because he wouldn't do what he was instructed to do. And here, uh, Lincoln was having pretty much the same situation with uh, with Meade. And um, of course, your your listeners will have to read the book to find out what what the ultimate uh, result was. But I think it's important to understand that Meade was receiving intelligence from a variety of sources. He had as much information he needed to trap Lee's army, and he had several options. He he could attack if he wanted to. He could send troops to the south side to block um, Lee's passage across the river. He could uh, conduct a siege and starve them out because they had no way to feed that army, 40,000 men. How, how are they going to feed that army when there, you know, there's, there's only so many uh, um, mills in the area that could uh, grind out grind wheat for powder uh, for uh, for you know making bread and that sort of thing. So he had several opportunities to, um, in effect, defeat Lee, and uh, that's what the book is all about: describing what the uh, various opportunities were, how much the type of information he was receiving from a, a variety of uh, sources. What are the the ways that they gathered information was interrogating prisoners and deserters. And there were many of those. There was a large portion of the Confederate army were drafted and coerced into the service so that when they uh, had the opportunity, they would often desert. And, and, of course, those who were captured, the BMI, the intelligence staff for, the, for Meade's army, would interrogate them and they develop a complete order of battle. That is the um, table of distribution for the the Confederate Army. They knew exactly how many men they had. They knew who were the commanders, the names of the commanders. Uh, all this information was available to Meade so he could make his decisions to attack or do one of the other options. But he was very reluctant to take the initiative, let's say. <laughs> Probably the best way to put, uh, put it. But uh, the, I think our, our book, of course, I, my co-author is, is Rick Schultz. He He's a retired uh, master sergeant, spent 30 years in intelligence. My own background was 38 years in, in intelligence, both in the Army and uh, with the National Security Agency. So we, we both were were fully immersed in the intelligence side of the uh, of the story, which, by the way, very few, if any, other people are working or uh, coming at the the story of the of the Civil War from that perspective. It's it's an interesting uh, phenomena that, uh, for whatever reason, those who would have were not exposed to intelligence operations in their working life, let's say. Uh, don't seem to grasp the the idea or understand the uh, methodology, so that more or less uh, people that are that 
have worked in intelligence have the field of themselves. I, I seem to be the only one who's writing about intelligence uh, these days, as a matter of fact. But it does uh, provide a very important and unique perspective. And I think we capture that in this book. And that's, that's what the, the difference. There are, there are other books that have been written about the retreat, and they're very good. But they don't have that intelligence um, aspect, which uh, gives you a, a, a much deeper insight into what was going on, what the opportunities were, what these generals were uh, had to take into consideration. And um, I think it just makes it much more interesting and exciting, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I'm a president. I, I have my own biases, of course, but uh, I, I find it extremely interesting to work from, from, from that perspective. Okay, the name of the book is Lee is Trapped. And must be taken 11 fateful days after Gettysburg, July 4th, July 14th, 1863. The author we've just spoken to, Thomas Ryan, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you very much for, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. BQ.org. Champions, what's the show? 
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of uh, Ask the Lawyer. We're very privileged to have our next guest on, Polish Consulate General. And, and the reason I say that, I have great adm- admiration for the Polish people and their contributions to Western civilization. But we're t- talking to the Polish Consulate General of New York, Maciej Gobieski. Welcome to Connors Corner. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Now, I understand th- there's a documentary out playing on Netflix right now. In it, you're talking about a, a Nazi concentration camp guard, the devil next door. And in that show, they have numerous maps of Poland. And your country has objections to that? Yes, yes, yes. Um, in fact, uh, we've been uh, actually for years now, Poland has been fighting uh, a certain tendency uh, uh, that uh, misleads people, a uh, tendency in newspapers, uh, various media outlets, uh, uh, newspaper, you know, media magazines, uh, what have you, um, that somehow, um, whether willingly or unwillingly, intentionally or unintentionally, want to create an impression that somehow uh, Nazi concentration camps, uh, and to be more precise, German Nazi concentration camps, um, were operated uh, in Poland. Um, and uh, sometimes even uh, calling them Polish death camps. Um, and uh, this is basically variation on a theme uh, here in this particular case uh, of, that, of that show. Uh, what, what, what basically, um, what really uh, uh, raised, uh, uh, raised our ire, so to speak, was that um, uh, there is a, basically the portrayal of the concentration camps was on, a, on the contemporary map of Poland. And while one can understand that for the contemporary audience, uh, people want to kind of understand the general location, so it's, it's good to use kind of contemporary maps, I think uh, it, it is misleading because it's a historical show. Uh, Poland at that time did not exist, definitely not in those borders, definitely not in the post-Second World War borders, and, um, and, uh, and it, Poland was occupied. It was basically an occupied territory by, German, uh, by Germany. And uh, all the camps were installed by the Germans uh, and, and uh, uh, on occupied territory without Poles' will, against Polish will. So um, that map uh, uh, raised this particular issue. Um, the prime minister of Poland, Mateusz Morawiecki, uh, sent a letter to the CEO of Netflix asking uh, uh, politely uh, whether, you know, he, he mentioned that it could be unintentional, but he said, look, uh, there is a, a real responsibility on a part of uh, uh, prestigious uh, uh, platforms like like Netflix and others to be very accurate, especially when it comes to very painful uh, history of the Second World War, where many countries uh, and many nations, of course, here we have the situation of obviously of the Holocaust, but also many other nations like um, you know, ethnic Poles and others suffered and were exterminated also by by, by the German Nazis. So he asked, and you know, I'll tell you. Uh, uh, Netflix uh, budged because this is kind of a news, uh, recent news, and Netflix, uh, in fact, issued um, uh, a, a statement to the effect that they will uh, amend or they will create um, uh, like a uh, like a legend to those maps, explaining uh, the context. Of course, we'd like to see those maps kind of disappear. Or would like to see the original occupied territory maps of Second World War, but at least they said that they will uh, they will somehow. Um, I mean, they, they actually they said they would change the maps and they would amend the and they would kind of uh, stipulate uh, you know what what the what the original geographic situation of of, of this of, of those camps were. So it was so 
Yeah, we are, we, are, we are quite satisfied. For the members of our audience, do you have any statistics on how many Polish people were executed in the Nazi death camps? Uh, we're talking hundreds of thousands. Uh, we, uh, we have, uh, so basically during the Second World War, six million Polish citizens uh, 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 perished. Among them, three million Polish citizens of Jewish descent. So basically we have 50-50. In terms of how many in the camps, we're talking hundreds of thousands. Uh, we have to remember that Auschwitz, the, the kind of the most infamous death camp um, um, established by Germany on occupied Polish soil, uh, obviously was the site of the most uh, tragic extermination of the Jewish people. But it was originally actually started as a, as a camp for, for Poles. And later on, uh, when the final solution started happening, it became a center for the extermination of, of the Jewish nation. Um, a lot of people forget that. A lot of people forget that, that, that uh, there was another uh, uh, camp that was strictly for Polish priests. There are uh, thousands of Polish priests in Dachau. There's another death camp that they're exterminated. So we're talking uh, hundreds of thousands of, of, of Poles um, uh, went through those camps. Um, so it's important to, to, to never lose track of that. We have to also remember that certain Poles that were prisoners in those camps, like uh, a captain named Witold Pilecki, who was an underground, he was an army officer that went into the underground, and he let himself be captured in the street uh, when there was a street roundup. Uh, he let himself be captured to infiltrate the Auschwitz concentration camp and organize resistance there. And he was the first, uh, you know, he's a Polish officer. He was the first one to actually notice the gas chambers being used first against the Soviet POWs and then against the Jews. And then he smuggled reports, so-called Pilecki reports, about this. So I think, you know, put, we have to put all that in context that Poles not only were victims also of those camps, but they, in fact, wanted to do something about it. They, they wanted to call on the world to bomb them to do something about them to no avail, because the Western allies were not really listening. Thank you for making that point. You're saying there was a concentration camp or a death camp for Catholic priests? Yeah, I mean, there was a death camp. I mean, not just Catholic priests. There were other prisoners there, but there was uh, Catholic priests were sent to one particular death camp. Uh, there was a particular concentration of, of Polish priests, Catholic Polish priests. It was, uh, the camp was called Dachau. Um, uh, this one was uh, on the original territory, uh, of Germany um, outside Munich, and, yeah, yeah, and uh, and this there was there were priest barracks, and this was basically not you know there were German priests, but uh, tons of uh, thousands of Polish priests. I knew one bishop uh, uh, that I met personally; he's now deceased. Uh, uh, who who you know who lived in Warsaw, who was who was a survivor. Um, uh, so the, you know the Catholic priests, a lot of Polish prisoners. Uh, there was an Archbishop called Archbishop Kozłowiecki and others. Um, not not many people also remember those 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 elements of the of the exterminatory um, uh, camps. Can you just describe for the audience, you know, what Poland went through during World War II? Poland was uh, basically uh, occupation of Poland was very different than the occupation of France and other countries. You have to remember that that there was a lot of collaboration in the western part of Europe, uh, obviously Vichy France, uh, in Norway, and others where Germans uh, operated with a more of a light touch. Basically, uh, if you agreed to the occupation, you could, co you could kind of coexist with the occupiers. Poland never agreed to this. Poland was the first one to fight Germans. And uh, because of that, Germans basically treated Poles as uh, a nation to be exterminated. Um, there was a plan called General Plan Ost, which basically, um, after the Holocaust was supposed to be accomplished with the Jewish nation, uh, Poles were supposed to be enslaved and moved as far east into the eastern flanks 
inside Russia, uh, turning into slave labor and then basically exterminated through hunger and starvation and, and other things. Um, part of those, part of this operation uh, succeeded. Uh, some kids were sent um, to German families who seemed Aryan, but basically Poles were treated as subhumans. We have to remember that Poles were also con considered untermenschen, and uh, that was a completely different situation uh, as in other countries of Europe. We also have to remember that uh, if you lived in Poland as, a, as an ethnic Pole, and if you wanted to help a Jewish uh, neighbor in any way whatsoever, uh, you were faced with a death penalty, not only for not only you, but also your family. This was the only such uh, uh, penalty uh, in occupied Europe at the time. And, um, and uh, that, that's basically that, that's unheard of. Um, there, was, there was then another uh, order uh, by the German occupiers that said if you even helped the Jews, or if you, did, if you knew of somebody who was hiding the Jews, but you did not inform the German authorities, you also, be, you, you also face the death penalty. So basically the amount of terror um, that was uh, prevalent on the, on the Polish occupied uh, land was just, just unbelievable. Nothing like that existed in France or in other countries in, in Europe. Again, I'm glad you're saying it because I don't think the American public has any idea of what you're talking about. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is not very widely known. And this is one of the one of the elements of, of my job as a consul in, in New York and then and my, my colleagues, the ambassador, and everybody else to bring to the attention of the American audience and everybody else uh, this particular aspect of, of the occupation. Um, obviously, I work very closely with the Jewish community. Uh, as I said, Poland, uh, before the war, was a multi-ethnic country, was a very tolerant place uh, throughout history. Uh, most Jews moved to Poland uh, from other countries like Portugal in medieval times because they found refuge there. We never had religious wars. We never had uh, that type of uh, interreligious interreligious strife. So that's why we also had a lot of, a lot of Jews. And that is why... Um, you know, the Holocaust happened mostly um, um, on, 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 uh, among Poles, Polish Jews, citizens of, 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 of Poland who happened to be Jews because uh, they moved there um, to, to fight, to find haven, safe haven. And, uh, but uh, we often forget that, um, that, you know, that, that Poles not only suffered alongside, but also uh, tried to help. Uh, we have the uh, the largest amount of the righteous among the nations uh, in Yad Vashem. It's, uh, I think, around 7,000 Poles. Uh, we had an official state-operated, well, state. There was no state, but it was an underground state. It was an underground resistance state that operated an official uh, organization that was helping the Jews called Zegota. And it saved thousands of Jews. If you think that Oskar Schindler's story is... Uh, is, is, is uh, uh, spectacular, then you really should read about um, Zagota, which, which you know, was to the order of, I don't know, uh, it was by a few orders of magnitude larger than whatever Oscar Schindler managed to achieve uh, in terms of saving uh, the Jews. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, not, not many people maybe are interested in, in this whole racist racial theories, but uh, really, Poles were, were next in line uh, for extermination. And um, and uh, that's that's what uh, uh, Poland officially tries to bring to the attention of the of the world. Changing the subject completely, I, I see yeah. that you're associated with the Sobieski Institute. One, what is that? And can you tell the audience a little bit about John Sobieski? <laughs> uh, Sobieski Institute was founded in the in the 90s by uh, young professionals, uh, lawyers, uh, people in the professions. Um, uh, I'm not actively associated with it because I'm, I, I have, a, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I have a, I assume the public post, but uh, I co co collaborate, cooperated with, with the Sobieski Institute. It's basically a think tank policy, think tank, conservative policy, think tank, but uh, with a big public policy 
drive. So there are people across all spectra in terms of sectors, you know, from energy, transport, geopolitics, what have you. Uh, just like, you know, you know I, 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 I would compare it maybe to the Heritage Foundation in the United States or something like that. And, um, and Sobieski uh, was our king, uh, 17th, 17th century king, who was uh, uh, Poland at the time was a uh, European superpower. Uh, it extended uh, uh, from the Baltic Sea in the north all the way to the Black Sea. And Sobieski was instrumental. Those who know a little bit of history, 1683, there was a famous siege of Vienna when the Austrian emperor, uh, uh, Habsburg emperor, called upon uh, uh, Jan Sobieski, our king, to help him fend off the Turkish Ottoman invasion. And it was precisely the, the Polish hussars, the famed Polish winged hussars, the, the cavalry that they destroyed and pushed the, the, the Turks uh, from, from the ramparts of Europe. So in a sense, Europe owes its uh, existence in the late uh, uh, 17th century and later on uh, to, to uh, well, basically it owes the fact that it remained Christian to that 17th century uh, battle, as, as, as well as many others. <laughs> the Battle of Warsaw in 1920, for example, was a battle uh, that stopped the Bolsheviks from spreading throughout Europe. So we've always been kind of a bit of a civilization, Western civilization or, civilization or frontier rampart uh, defending defending the, the Western uh, Western world. Can you go through that again? Because I would bet half the audience doesn't know that Poland and the Soviet Union were in conflict in the 1920s. Yes, obviously, Soviet communism started with, uh, you know, with the famous uh, November Revolution uh, <clears throat> in 1917, and, and it started uh, spreading. And basically, the ambition of Lenin, later on Stalin, uh, was to spread communism around the world. Obviously, Stalin succeeded after 1945, after the Second World War. Uh, but uh, he tried before. Uh, he tried before. Uh, he basically wanted to invade Europe. Uh, there were people, there were communist uh, parties in Western Europe, in Germany, in other countries that were waiting uh, for the Soviet soldiers to start revolutions in Western Europe. But Poland was the only country on the way, and uh, and they had to go through Poland to get to um, those uh, areas where uh, communist revolutions were brewing. We didn't have a real communist uh, presence in Poland, and we were very anti-Bolshevik, and uh, we stopped them. There was a famous battle on the Vistula River on the 15th of August, 1920, that, uh, that our um, military leader, Marshal Pilsudski, um, orchestrated and basically pushed them back. Uh, and that's, again, uh, it, was called, it was considered one of the, I don't know, 20 or 30 most important battles uh, in European or world history by one of the French historians. Um, so that was, that was it. We basically... It was the conflict was obvious. Those Soviets who were trying to expand, just like they tried during the Second World War. Thank you very much for bringing history to life. I'm glad Netflix amended their position and yeah. keep up the good work. And if you have anything more to talk uh, talk about Polish history, we'd love to have you back on the show. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you for your interest uh, and uh, all the best. Uh, Poland and, and, uh, and the United States are great friends, so uh, I hope there'll be more um, more of this. So thank you again. Thank you again. Thanks again to Maciej Gobieski, Polish Consulate General of to New York City. I learned more than a little bit about history from this interview. Eva, did, did you learn anything? Yes, I learned a lot. Um, uh, that was uh, very interesting. Uh, I mean, I think this interview was uh, very informative, and uh, it reminded me about a lot of things we learned in the school a long time ago. But it was very nice to hear that again and uh, refresh that, uh, refresh the history. Okay, because I don't think very few Americans know that the Soviets and the Poles fought a war in 1920. 
this is known in Poland. Uh, in Poland, a lot of um, people they talking about, and uh, that's uh, a lot of about this. Uh, you can you can hear in the Polish media, but uh, not. I don't think really this is known here in America. You know, and Beth, one thing I didn't know. I didn't know they that in Dachau they had a huge concentration of Catholic priests. I know Catholic priests were executed, like uh, Maximilian Kolbe was executed in uh, Nazi No, I. I knew that many religious leaders um, and people of faith, but I had no idea that there was a, a particular, I mean, Dachau, you have a, a specific section for the priests. I mean, that's sad. Yeah, it is. You know, I'm reminded by one time in Lagatis, we had a, a lecture about Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was an extraordinary visionary. One of the things he had a vision, and to build a monastery in Nagasaki, and he built the monastery, and everybody said, you're, you're building the monastery on the wrong side of the mountain. Whatever, he built it on that side of the mountain. Of course, that was the side of the mountain that was shielded from the blast. And the friars who were in that monastery were then able to go into Nagasaki and help the survivors after the bomb. And he did this in the 1920s, 30s. He was also, you know, he was, he was ethnic German, and he could have been protected, but he renounced his German citizenship. He was publishing anti-Nazi flyers all over Poland, and for that he paid the uh, the ultimate sacrifice. You know, I just, uh, as you were speaking, I think it's probably smart from the Nazis' point of view to take the priests and put them in one spot, because then that kept them from being with the other prisoners and maybe helping them. I, again, I didn't know that, and that's it's a part of history we learned about. And again, you know, I I don't think this should be said enough, but uh, John Sobieski, when he the siege of Vienna, oh, you know, was he saved Western civilization. And if I'm not mistaken, he he attacked on September 11th. That's one of that's why 9/11 was such a big deal in the Muslim world. Eva, where are your folks from? Uh, for the southeastern part of Poland. Mm -hmm. yes. um, what I mean, were you aware of the concentration camps that the Nazis had built? Uh, yes, uh, I, I, I'm aware, and I've been to a few of them. I, I've been to uh, Sobibor, and right. also I've been to one in Germany, in Dachau. And um, that was a very sad memory. That was a long time ago, like 1987. But what I remembered was that the... The sad fact was that the, all the, the Germans, they destroyed all the evidence uh, of the crime they did. So oh. there was not much left okay. to see, but we, we know the history. Well, so before we were able to watch the documentary on Netflix, and so before is, is one of the concentration camps that they were talking about yes. on the documentary. No, that's uh, awful times. Awful yes, times. Yes, it is. Yeah, and you know, thinking about it, we didn't get to talk about the American Revolutionary War at all, where we had, you know, General Pulaski, who helped found the U.S. Cavalry, and Dedeus Kosciuszko, who built West Point, helped defeat the British at Saratoga, and helped defeat Cornwallis in the, in the southern states, and who was a brilliant general who later went back to Poland and wrote the Polish Constitution, which gave rights to... The to the Jews, among others, which is why the reason why so many Jewish people left right, other parts right. of Europe to, to to go into Poland, and he was truly one of the great minds of the uh, of the 18th century, going into the the 19th century. And he wrote, I'm, Napoleon asked him to command the Polish armies during the invasion of Russia, and Kosciuszko wrote a, an open letter to 
the French people and said, Napoleon will only lead you to your graves. So he was, you he know, was again, brilliant, brilliant and, and not only brilliant, he was on the right side of history. Exactly right. Another thing he did, um, he didn't accept any pay for his service as a general to the American army during the Revolutionary War, and he took the pay and he gave it to Thomas Jefferson to educate and free slaves, which, which Jefferson did Jefferson not do. do so. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he really is one of the great, great men of American and Polish history. It's a sad story because, of course, he makes Poland where people want to escape to from Russia, from, you know. And so what happens? Russia, Sweden, and Germany go Prussia. after him. Prussia. Prussia, Austria. And, of course, one of the things, Thomas Ryan, you know, that, that's a very you know, important part of the American Civil War. And a lot of people cr criticized General Meade for his actions after the Battle of Gettysburg, that he did not aggressively pursue Lee into Virginia. Lee's troops were battered, too. They lost a lot of men at Gettysburg. Yeah, they had more reinforcements, and I guess every, anybody can second-guess anybody else. And, of course, as our friend Alan Guelzo said, General Meade did not want a crushing victory against Lee. He wanted a negotiated settlement because his heart was not in the Civil War. All right, well, I think David Kincaid is telling us it's time to wrap up the show. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then on Thursday, December 5th at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, at 11 a.m. 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.